Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to Mouth Off. This is the official podcast of heyyouguys.co.uk. My name is John Lias and joining me tonight we have one of our writers, Craig Skinner, who, if you've been checking the site over the last couple of weeks, has taken the lead on a pretty fantastic Twin Peaks retrospective. We're all huge fans of Twin Peaks uh, on Hey You Guys and we will actually be talking about that a little bit later on. So if you haven't seen it, do go and check out the site because there's a lot of very interesting and quite silly stuff on there as well. So Craig's joining us. Also, we're joined as usual by Brendan Conley from SlashFilm.com. Okay, there's no film reviews this week because we talked about probably the major release, which is Whip It. We talked about that last week and gave it um, as many thumbs up as we could muster. Um, of course, that beat down Clash of the Titans. And even though a few people have seen Clash, no one has really yet said that it was any good. So I'm just going to reiterate the fact that it's pretty pants and the 3D is pretty terrible. So just in case you hadn't seen it and you were thinking maybe I'll go this weekend, don't. Um, so uh, we're going to go straight into talking about a, uh, an event that Brendan... And I were at uh, this week, I think it was on Wednesday night, um, in BAFTA. Uh, Parallel Lines is a joint project between Phillips and Ridley Scott Associates, where five directors were given the chance to direct a uh, short. It didn't have to be about anything, but it did have to contain the same six or seven lines of dialogue. And the directors were able to then use those dialogue, uh, use that dialogue in any way that they wished it was a really really interesting experiment and if you haven't seen them we've put all of these shorts up on the site so you can actually go and view all of these there's five of them they're very very different in terms of what they try and get over um i was a big fan of certainly three of them um but you can judge for yourself when you actually go on the site so brendan we were at bafta on wednesday what did you make of the entire event and the project as a whole well, it's nice to see a bit of a fuss made over some short films. Doesn't happen anywhere like often enough. And um, even though these films were initiated as a commercial project, they're, they're sponsored by by Philips to promote a new cinema scope shaped television set. Um, uh, I don't think many of the directors really ap- approached it as a, as a commercial prospect. What what seems to have happened? There are forty some forty odd directors on the the roster of Ridley Scott Associates, and they all pitched. And it seemed to be that if you had a really good pitch or you were Ridley Scott's son, then you were chosen to to make your film. Um, so we've got five of these films made. They're all quite varied, and they've all worked with these uh, these seven lines, which are: What is that? It's a unicorn. Never seen one up close before. Beautiful. Get away. Get away. And I'm sorry. And then that immediately seems to dictate some sort of narrative about, I don't know, hunters chasing a unicorn and then a unicorn turns it a little bit malicious. But actually, four of the films were a lot more creative than that. Um, the one that you're talking about, and you, could, of course, can see these five films on the site, um, the one that you're talking about was Jake Scott's The Hunt, which pretty much took it literally and uh, I'm not going to spoil it for you but um, it's pretty much as Brendan described there wasn't an awful lot of difference and it was good that the way that they were shown because that was shown first and it was as if they were trying to say this is how you could interpret it and it's quite a, a linear narrative there's nothing really here and it's it, it's fine um, but then the four films that followed took a very very different take they took us to very different places um, using those uh, sort of seven lines of dialogue um, Brendan in terms of, of, of what you saw which uh, which shorts stood out for you I really like Greg Fay's one um, about the two young kids, the contemporary one about two young kids that isn't a cartoon. That's probably the best way of 
<laughs> pointing people at it without uh, any spoiler material. It's quite touching, and it, it does something. You know, it's, it, it doesn't ra- radically sort of like subvert the script, but it does read it in a way beyond the obvious, and it's very sweet, um, and it's pretty well put together. I liked Johnny Hardstaff's tribute to to Blade Runner. I mean, you know, he's a director at Ridley Scott Associates, and he's got a script with the word unicorn in it. Is it any wonder that Blade Runner came to mind straight away? Sure. Um, and he used uh, uh, a lot of iconography and, and notions from Blade Runner in a, in a new way, sort of mixed them up with a bit of Hitchcock. That was fun. Mm. Um, uh, though it did seem like um, it was a hint of something bigger, but not to the extent that uh, Carl Eric Rinch's uh, film The Gift, or Podinok, uh I believe. Very good. Um, uh, it seems to be a bit of something bigger, because as it's since transpired... He had an idea for a feature film before he was uh, approached to pitch for Parallel Lines, and he cooked up a way to make his Parallel Lines project a taste of the world of the feature film he's planning to make. So for him, it's a very commercial selling pitch in a very different way. He had a feature film to sell here, not just some Philips TVs. It's really interesting you say that because those... um the, the films in particular you were talking about, Dark Room is the Johnny Hardstaff one, and I, like you, instantly thought of it's it's like Rear Window in a Blade Runner universe, and the way that he um, the way that he moves into the scene and uses the very wide screen, I thought was re- you know was really really well done. It was interesting to hear him talk about it afterwards and talk about you know the ideas and and how it came, and it wasn't part of a bigger thing for him. I don't think it was more about he had an image and then he sort of worked his way back, which is ironic because that's you know in the actual film it works in reverse so um, you were talking about um, The Gift as well I was a big big fan of that and El Secreto de Mateo that could I could be butchering Oof. the language and everything but that's Greg Faye's one and that was my favourite um, what's your hits from Spain just bottom out <laughs> I did my best so I had, you know uh, and then we, we obviously had you know The Hunt and the final film was uh, June and the Hidden Skies um, by High Sim now all of these films um did did do things differently, but what I was most impressed was that they, um, apart from the gift, it didn't seem like they were trying to tell a particularly bigger story. Now, in the same way that the short story and the novel are two very different beasts, uh, cinematic shorts are, you know, can be or maybe should be very different beasts to the sort of full length um, feature. But in the gift's case, particularly when the news did transpire that Carl Eric Rinch has, I think there's Fox and Warner are trying to fight to see who's who's going to get the um the, you know the rights to the and and Universal and I'm putting my chips on Universal as the as the winners of this race. Mm. Personally, I mean, I don't care who gets it as long as someone does. And um, the when we were talking about the news, I, I instantly thought that the actual film itself, the gift, could have acted almost as a prologue to um, to the bigger film. It doesn't need to be expanded in any way. It was a really, really beautifully shot, um, uh, very, uh, very kinetic. Well, we say shot. shot. Uh, an awful lot of it is CG. Um, the cinematography was 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 fantastic. I really, really there's a it. tremendous amount of that that was never filmed. Um, there are shots in that film. In fact, the chase sequence is over eighty five percent CG. Yeah. The cars are CG. The sky is CG. Mm. There's not really any background plates there. No, but um, the but the 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 effect of it is um you know is one that left pretty much everyone talking about that film. Yeah. Um, above the others, and of course now, of course, you know, it could be going, it could be going, you know, global and made made into a big feature. So, but Craig, let me let me bring you in here. You've had a chance to see these films. Did any of the films in particular stand out for you? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think the gift really impressed me, but um, sadly, I think it did strike me more like a teaser trailer than a, a proper short film. Um, I think I really liked the um, Greg Fay one, um, although I did feel it was a little, little bit overdone, maybe. But, what was it uh, called, Craig? The Greg Fay one. Can you? Um, it's the secret of something, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> the full cycle. Well done, well done for avoiding that. Um, it's just going to be me who gets made fun of for that. So, <laughs> what did you think about um, the 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 other two films that we haven't maybe concentrated on the um, the the CG animation and Jake Scott's The Hunt? Um, I think pretty much The Hunt was pretty bad in my opinion. Uh, it was way too literal and it wasn't particularly visually interesting either. Um, I don't know. And the way it ends just seems weak and a bit obvious. <laughs> I wasn't very impressed with that one. Um, the animated one I thought was pretty good. It was um, nice. It, it felt the it took the idea of what it's like to be a kid and uh, imagining another world and going to another place. Um, and it, it transported you quite well into that sort of feeling. I thought it worked quite well. Yeah. Brandon, what did you think about um, the, uh, the CG animation? Well, I mean, you're presented with this, these lines of, of dialogue, and one of the thought processes that will go through your head is how can I, you know, how can I invent something that's beyond the obvious here? And I, I think High Sim hit on this notion of well, you know, it, it can be anything if it's a kid's imagination. It's that sort of that sort of liberty that he bought for himself with this this concept. I think that the models were pretty poor. The CG models were pretty badly designed, and I think they were really very badly animated. But at a sort of a quite storyboard level, in terms of how it was staged, it was rather good. Um, and uh, it was sweet, and it, it was nice, and, um, you know, the colours were nice, and the, the sound was good. Um, I thought it was a good, you know, a good short short animation. It's certainly, if you watch a lot of short animations, it's, it's it would be in something like the 80th percentile or something. Um, but I, I think that um, uh, this initially there were going to be two directors credited on that and I find it a little mysterious that one of them has fallen by the, fallen by the wayside I wonder why um, they actually played a short documentary which is about 5-10 minutes after the screenings of all the five films in which Sim was talking um, to the camera and there was somebody else next to him and that presumably was the other director uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming so yeah well, when I was at the big launch for this in Barcelona a while ago there were two directors named and I'm kicking myself because I can't find my audio recording that named the other director but he's uh, he's no longer attached for some reason uh, I have no idea about that. I mean, uh, I enjoyed that, but like I said, it, it didn't it didn't kind of affect me in any way. Whereas, um, loved the gift. Um, very moved by the uh, by the secret one by Greg Frey. I'm not going to try and uh, repeat that. Um, and I really enjoyed Dark. I mean, it was good because we actually had a chance to speak to to Johnny Hart stuff afterwards. Um, he, he did a Q and A, which was. Uh, you know, very, very um, enlightening, and also we had a chance to speak to him afterwards. And I think um, it was interesting because I think he hinted it was about you know, there was a potential for this short film to be made into something more. And it would just be really interesting to see if um, if if the gift you know transpires into anything, and also if uh, if Darkroom is going to move on to something else. But um, just to just to reiterate the fact that you can see all of these, and you can actually see the the Q and A with Johnny Hardstaff uh, on the site. So do do check it out. Uh, it's uh, 
it's really, really worth doing. It's not the kind of thing that we cover very much on the site. There are, you know, obviously short competitions that, that, that go on a lot, but a lot of the news that we talk about, a lot of the, you know, the stuff that we put up is not necessarily about short films. And I think it's, um, it's really good that even though it's a, um, it's, it's, it's a corporate thing with, with Phillips being involved, to get these five different visions, I think, is, is really, really important and exciting as well. In the same way that Spike Jones and his, um, uh, collaboration with Absolute Vodka, the um, the I'm Here uh, short film, uh, that that blew my mind, and I absolutely loved that. So you know, the more corporate sponsorship that isn't intrusive, the better. I have to say, um, guys, we're going to move on from this slightly, but we we'll sort of stay in the, in the same in the same vein to talk about short films because um, I that's probably the biggest hole in my sort of cinematic education. I started off you know watching a lot of the silent stuff. Um, the Melier in particular, and of course they are, you know, relatively short films. But um, you, let me let me ask you first, Brendan. Are, are you a big fan of short films? Do you have any directors that you maybe want to, um, you know, tell the rest of the world about? Oh, well, I'm definitely a fan of short films in theory. The majority of them are rubbish. I think the percentage of short films that are bad is higher than the percentage of feature films that's bad. Um, that's probably quite a damning thing. Saying that, to why be honest, you, Brendan, why do you think that is? Um, because it's quite easy to get people together to make a short film because the avenues for which I see short films are less filtered for example they're online um, because uh, maybe the people who can get it together to make a short you know actually maintain uh, their attention span long enough to to make a short film would never be able to make a, a feature I, I, I don't know a, a combination of those factors are, are more besides. But if you think of the short film as a as a testing ground, I mean, it's only a testing ground if not everybody graduates. Do you mm. know what I mean? Um, so, in a sense, I think that the short film maybe maybe is a, a testing ground. Um, I've seen people make bad short films and make good feature films. I've seen people make good short films and then make bad feature films. Hang on, I said the same thing twice. You know what I mean? Um, it, you know, and vice versa. Yeah. So uh, I think. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of bad short films out there, and I used to sit through a lot of short film programs at festivals, just get a bit ticked off of it all, really. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, Craig. What what about you? Um, have you got any experience with this? Do you kind of seek short films out, or do you see them like Brendan does? I think I don't seek them out. No, I think if I hear about a good one, obviously like this sort of event or a director that I like, um, I remember when Wong Kar Wai made a short a couple of shorts I instantly went and watched them um, but just watching shorts that people have made not knowing anything about them I tend to avoid it to be honest because I think I've seen too many bad ones and I think doing a film degree um, you get the chance to see a lot of really terrible short films and you see a lot of short films uh, that people don't really care about but they make because it's easy and it's a real shame because it is a really nice medium and I think um, what these short films kind of reminded me is that there is, you know, it, you can make really cool short films and uh, they can be a really interesting format to use. But unfortunately, a lot of people make a lot of short films and not a lot of them are good. Um, so I, I don't often seek them out, I don't think. No. I mean, the thing is, with with the internet and with you know certain certain sites that that you know that are seem you know seem built for for short films, uh, I'm sure that 
the internet will bring us many, many more. I mean, in this this in particular, this Parallel Lines project was was good because they had to go through Ridley Scott and they had to be worthwhile because there were there were budgets behind it. It's a real shame that that I actually share your um, share your views, Craig. I, I think you know I've I've seen a few, and if there is a short film that's that's going viral on the internet, like there was one yesterday called Pixels, and uh, I cannot remember. Well, it's a music video. Yeah, but exactly. But of course, then then that that goes around the world, and everyone and everyone sees it. There was another one um, by uh, another director from Uruguay, who you may know and you may have seen it in the same way that Alive in Joburg. Um, yeah, the giant robot one. Yeah, the giant robot one. I think it's called. Uh, I'm not even going to try and do it in the in the original language. It's like I think it's Panic Attack or something along those lines. Um, and it's yeah, it's like a special effects piece, and it wasn't as impressive, I don't think, as as Alive in Joburg, but that gets a bit of notoriety. A lot of people see it, and in some ways, that's maybe the, you know the best way to get to get known is to make a short film and then just hope that it goes you know if it's any good then it will go around the world and catch people's eye but um i think i think that's something different though um because uh, i mean i think one thing that struck me watching these was that the gift really did feel like it something like alive in joburg where it was and uh, not necessarily that i'm not sure that was neil blomkamp's intention but that it felt like they were trying to pitch to make a film and I think that Panic Attack video as well is very much the same thing. It feels like they're trying to get, make it viral and get the attention of the studio. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the point I was but, trying to make was that you can actually get, get it seen by a lot of people. And it doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't have to be like a pitch for your big feature. I mean, I think there was a, there was a, a short film that I posted on Hey You Guys last week. It's actually a few weeks ago now um, that seems to have built a lot of buzz, which is Plastic Bag which was uh, narrated by Werner Herzog. And I absolutely loved it. Really, really lovely short film. Um, but again, I probably only checked it out because I heard it was narrated by Werner Herzog. So it's kind of, I always need an in in order to get me to watch a short film. It's not just that I will seek them out. Yeah, and I think that you know, as, as long as you, you do have festival or you, or you do have people that are looking out for them, then the good stuff will be seen. That's the only thing that, that we can that we can hope for, really. Um, Plastic Bag's an interesting one, actually, because it's the latest project by a director of feature films. Um, it's uh, Ramin Barani, who did uh, Chop Shop and Man Pushcart, and um, recently Goodbye Solo. Um, so he's a sort of a known entity. Um, and I think he made Plastic Bag because uh, it was a short film. It was, it was the... You know the the format that he needed to tell this story in, um, and that's that's encouraging. Just to know that would 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 be incitement to watch the thing. Mm. Yeah, I think when someone has an idea, they should be thinking to themselves: Is this an idea for a short film, or is this an idea for a feature film? And it's nice to think that yeah, there's directors out there that are looking at an idea that they've come up with and trying to actually decide that, rather than just thinking, "Oh, well, I'll make a feature film." Because I think I've probably seen a fair few feature films that would have made nice short films, but I really regretted the fact that the director spent 90 to 120 minutes telling a story that wasn't actually enough. I totally agree with you, Craig, and it's almost as if the short film is looked down upon uh, either as, like we said, like, like just a pitch for a bigger idea. But um, how can it make money? That's, that's the thing. The revenue stream of a short film is... is it's very different than with a feature film. People buy tickets to feature films. People don't buy tickets to short films. That's true. Uh, Go on, it has to, has to generate finance through some form of sponsorship 
or or just be a both financial write off in some sense. So okay, so say for example you you've got some director who um, has an idea, he knows that it's a short film, and it proves very very difficult to get any sort of financing for it. What's the what's what's the options then? Does he just try and make does try and make it on, on on his own? Is it a labour of love, or is it going to be that he has to make it like a pitch to make it into a bigger feature film? Do you see what I mean? Because the short film is a, is a, is a valid form. Yes, it may not make some money, but you can you have people out there who are making them. Of course, that does lead to a lot of you know quite bad ones. But um, I'm just trying to think what what would happen if if your idea was for a short film and you wanted to get it seen by people. Is it festivals? Is that the best step? That's almost the only place you can see it on the big screen. Yeah, Craig, what are you saying? Yeah, I, I don't think it's necessary the the format anymore. I mean, Plastic Bag played at um, South by Southwest, um, but I didn't really see that much coming out of South by Southwest about it. I mean, some people did obviously uh, blog about it, and there were tweets going up about it when it showed. But it was also uh, on the Future States website, which again it was part of another um, kind of a load of short films that were made as uh, to one specific idea, which was um, it's to do with what the future could be like. Sure. And um, I think the fact that it was online was a lot stronger to get people to see it than than it playing at festivals. Sure. I mean, that, that's kind of what we were doing for the, for the Parallel Lines. It was a case of, yes, Phillips are you know, putting the money into this to advertise their, their new widescreen TV, but um, you know, we get a chance to see some pretty good stuff. So, all right, guys, let's round this up for, 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 for short films. Um, if any of you are listening and you have seen a particularly good short film that you want to share with us, then, then do get in touch. If you want to get in touch with us, the email address is mouthoff at heyyouguys.co.uk. If you have any shorts that you want to send us, then, uh, then please do. I'd be really interested. Okay, guys, um, we're going to move away from Parallel Lines to Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks had its 20th anniversary yesterday and there was much celebration uh, on the internet and I'm sure beyond. It was an American TV series created by David Lynch and Mark Frost and if you haven't seen it or if you don't know anything about it you'll know the name Laura Palmer hopefully um, or you'll have seen some sort of parody of a dancing midget in a red room. Um, These are iconic moments of TV and I do believe that it changed TV um, in the 90s uh, dramatically. We're all big big fans of Twin Peaks. My introduction to it was in about 97 when a friend of mine brought his videos around because of course it's you know not been out on dvd for a while um it certainly wasn't then and we just blazed through the whole of the sort of two series and uh, i was hooked the first 26 minutes of twin peaks will hook you and it will not let go until you've seen the very very last frame of the uh of the end of the second season i was watching it again recently because we got our hands on the on the gold box um dvd set which is both both series and i hadn't seen it in a, in you know in a good 10 years and watching the first 26 minutes of it, which is pretty much the first act of, um, of, of the pilot episode, I was just blown away by how amazingly they managed to compress so much into uh, a world that we had never seen before. We, we, we're, we're strangers ourselves in Twin Peaks, and yet the way that it's cut together, the, the way that the narrative flows between um, different events that happen, it's just so perfect, and it's still got me. Um, so, guys, um, Craig, you, you were sort of the... The, the champion of Twin Peaks on the site. What were your feelings 20 years later? When did you first come across Twin Peaks? What are your thoughts on it? Um, well, I was familiar with it through, um, like you say, I mean, it, the dancing midget is kind of something that just sticks in the, in the kind of public 
conscious that everyone just knows about. And there was obviously that uh, scene in The Simpsons that I think I saw when I was a kid where um, Homer's watching Twin Peaks on TV and doesn't have a clue what's going on. Uh, I remember my parents talking about it as this this big thing that happened. Um, and I absolutely loved David Lynch and I'd never had a chance to see it and rented the videos and just basically w- worked my way through all the videos. Um, and I do remember that when I first watched it, there was one video missing. So for about 10 years, I had no idea what happened in three episodes. And uh, the first time I saw that, it kind of pretty much blew my mind because it was one of the main uh, dream sequences that uh, main character Dale Cooper has. And uh, seeing that after 10 years and then finally finding out what happened was pretty pretty crazy. I mean, I absolutely love this series. I think it just has everything. I Although I really like David Lynch, I think perhaps this is the best thing he's ever done because it it's just so enjoyable to watch. Um, it, it has the mystery and the horror that has become a lot of David Lynch's staple, but it has so much humour that admittedly is in films like Wild at Heart, but not in the same way it's in Twin Peaks. It's just such an enjoyable, fun series to watch, as well as terrifying in moments as well. <laughs> Especially, uh, I don't know where we're going to go with spoilers, but I can say too much. Yeah, we probably can't spoil anything at all because we're trying to get people to watch it, but um, no, there, there, there are moments in it that I still can't watch um, without just feeding this complete terror. And I know exactly what's coming. I know what the ramifications are of it. I see it. And it's like David Lynch has sort of sneaked into my brain and worked out exactly what's going to terrify me the most. And it, and it will come in an episode where there's, you know, just completely stupid, ridiculous humor putting, you know, Dale Cooper, who is this almost like this boy scout, um, into this, uh, into this bizarre Northern American town and have these horrible murders and this really terrifying sequences. Um, it's a brilliant juxtaposition. So, um, no, I'm right with you there, Craig. Brendan, what about you? Well, I I discovered it probably about a couple of months before it started screening on British TV. I, I was a big fan of Lynch already. I remember when Blue Velvet played in cinemas. I was too young to go and to go and see it, so I had to wait until till I could watch it on um, on VHS. Um, so I was sort of waiting for for, for Twin Peaks, and um, I was getting you know very anxious. And I remember the the promos on BBC Two were really good and really strong and then on the the first week they played the episode on the on the Tuesday night and that was me done on Tuesday nights for a terribly long time after that I was locked in in, in front of the television and they replayed the first episode on the uh, Saturday night of that week and afterwards they had a uh, a, a late night discussion panel with Sarah Denant and Paul Morley and some other people talking about it and they showed an episode of um uh, uh, showed a couple of David Lynch short films I think The Alphabet and The Grandmother so I mean just think about that now it was a TV show where what they decided to do was have a discussion of it live on television just after it aired that's how big a moment in television pop culture this actually was um, I still think it's the, the, the best TV show ever made I think that some episodes are just awful but I think when it's good it's sublime um, it's the first time that a TV show reinvented itself within a season in that way. If you watch episode one and then you watch episode three, they're not the same. You watch episode three and then episode seven, they're not the same. 
it's it, there's a sort of a glacial shift maybe it's quite slow but it's constantly reinventing itself i think that uh, special agent dale cooper is probably the the most interesting protagonist that we've ever been asked to uh, just accept as an audience cipher I, I think it's i think it's wonderful and it is some of the best stuff lynch has done i think he has done better work in in cinema but i i do think that that twin peaks is is almost as good as anything he's ever done and it is um, a real high point in, in TV history, but I'm thinking it's 20 years old now and I've never seen anything quite like it. I remember there was an odd series called Wild Palms, which came kind of close after it, almost on its coattails, but I've never seen it. I remember watching it and thinking it was nowhere near as good. <laughs> no, I, I went, after finishing Twin Peaks uh, on video, I think it was my dad said to me, oh, you should check out Wild Palms. That's... Uh, that was kind of the thing that followed it. That was, you know, it was weird as well. It was really interesting. Was it any good, Craig? I don't remember. I, I got, I think, two episodes in. I did the same thing. I just went and rented all the videos. Got, I think, two episodes in, and I just thought it was absolutely terrible. Yeah, it was really rubbish. Awful. Absolutely. Oh, you remember it good. <laughs> I don't remember it at all, but I remember it kind of being close by. But if you, th- I mean, it, it's strange. I mean, I'm actually, my, my, my plans this evening are, once I finish the podcast is to go and basically finish off Twin Peaks because um, my wife has never seen it. I'm not a huge fan of David Lynch and when I got the box set and said, I've got a review for the site, I'm sorry, we've got to watch it and everything. She sat down and watched it and we were both hooked. I mean, I was hooked again after knowing exactly what happens and the weird thing is I could still quote the lines and I wasn't like a Twin Peaks nerd where I, I watched it religiously. I'd seen it once because it wasn't available for ages and um, it made such a such an impression on me so Have you ever met a Twin Peaks nerd who used to like record the episode at nine o'clock on the Tuesday and then at ten to ten rewind it and start watching it again? He used to know most of the dialogue and was very obsessive and had bought the secret diary of Laura Palmer and did get Agent Cooper's Have you ever met anyone like that, John? I think I sat next to him at the cinema this week, maybe. <laughs> I think you did, actually, yeah. I think you're talking to him right now. I was just so absolutely passionately in love with this thing. But, okay, Brendan, uh, this, this could be a good thing to sort of go into because what about it actually makes a difference? There was nothing like it before as far as I can understand, but what made it so special for you? A lot of television, particularly drama on television, followed the paradigm of Peyton Place, really, and that had gone on pretty much unquestioned. Um, a few strange things had happened on Dallas, that had sort of wiggled the, the, the paradigm around a little bit, but the tooth hadn't quite come out. And, and Twin Peaks was like a, a, a fast extraction of that tooth and, <laughs> and a gush of, of odd blood that flew afterwards. I mean, it, it was just it was just a soap opera deconstructed and turned upside down and inside out. And the soap opera is the quintessential television dramatic form, right? Beyond, I think, news broadcasting, panel shows, I think the soap opera is probably the... The, the most television television gets and um, and Twin Peaks just d- deconstructed it in such a wonderful way nobody's really had anything to add since well there's even a, uh, a kind of TV show within the TV show which it constantly you see invitation in the background of TV an invitation to love yeah um, which I, I was thinking the other day and I might try and put something up on the site about it about how Twin Peaks would play today if it was on TV and the internet following that it would get. And I think Invitation to Love would just make an incredible viral uh, internet video that would go round, you know. Yeah, if- I don't know why, you know, Dr. House has a, has a medical show that he keeps watching. I can't remember what it's calling, uh, what they call it, but I don't know why that's not been used as some sort of viral marketing thing, actually. Mm. 
because the sort of the medical soap within the medical soap that is House is fulfills almost exactly the same role as Invitation to Love in Twin Peaks. Well, it's it's one thing as well you're saying about the soap opera. It's, it's totally true. I think it it all Twin Peaks deconstructs it, but it does kind of in part base its model on it. The story between um, I don't know. The, there's a story about a pregnancy in it. Uh, in Twin Peaks, yes, yeah, incredibly funny, and it, yeah, you, we, I mean, uh, indeed, and but all, all of the the uh, Bobby and Donna stuff, all of that, it's it's, yeah. it's soapy, absolutely. Um, Shelley and, and Leo, it's all soapy, but but around the edges, there's always some questioning of it or some subversion of it. I mean, you can't you can't deconstruct a form without admitting that form. Do you know what I mean? I can't I can't cut a body up on the the operating table if I don't bring the body into the room. So Twin Peaks very much brings soap opera into play. But look at oh, how it starts. Like, Sorry, Craig, go on. Uh, no, I was just going to say I think it's. Um, a really good entrance though for anyone who doesn't like David Lynch. I think what I've said to people before who've said, oh, I can't stand David Lynch, you know, I watched Blue Velvet, I didn't like it. I think if you don't like David Lynch, still go and check out Twin Peaks because that sort of deconstruction and the soap operas, that kind of structure that it's based on makes it very easy for anyone to watch, even if you're not a fan of the, the way that David Lynch does things. And I think there is... There is some point in season two where it's gone so far away from that paradigm that I think it's very hard for anyone to watch. Yeah, but by then you're hooked, aren't you? And I was just thinking that um, it's got a great sense of, of place, but you know, it's got a weird timeless quality in the sense that it it doesn't date clearly because I'm watching it you know, 20 years later and absolutely loving it, but also the actual look of the film in terms of where, where it's taking its um, you know, taking sort of you know, design uh, pointers from uh, it could be something like something out of the 50s it's almost like a love letter to you know sort of the, you know the 50s in sort of middle America but just given this glorious twist and this of course happens right at the very beginning of the very first episode with the discovery of um, Laura Palmer wrapped in plastic it it shocks you and it and it and it draws you in and it, and you're right, Brendan. There is a part in, in, in the second season where it does it does kind of take um, a bit of a nosedive, um, but then it you know it really does ramp it up. And I have to say, Craig, a couple of things that you were talking about. One of them is um, uh, the uh, the fact that it, you know if it played today, in the same way that that Lost kind of really captured people's imagination, then you've got people who are still six seasons in, um, you know, really really going for it and trying to you know writing commentaries for it i think we would have had a, a very similar thing for twin peaks there is still quite a bit of a fan base but because it wasn't um the internet wasn't around in the same way that it is now you don't get people tweeting it um you don't get people who are you know trying to literally find every single detail so it's actually quite nice to not know an awful lot about it there's um, a convention every year uh, there was a magazine called wrapped in plastic which was yeah. published very frequently yeah absolutely but but not now say for example if, if it was done today there would be so much more it would be much more in, in the public consciousness because people who did see it 20 years ago absolutely loved it like 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 you did brendan and there is a lot of stuff that that did carry on but i think it would be different today we can't say too much about you know um about it because you know it, it can be classed as a spoiler. Um, what happens at the end of at the end of season two? But the fact that it was cancelled at the end of season two, um, I don't know if that happened. It was today. actually cut short. Their episode order was slashed. They thought they had more episodes than they did. Well, they had to radically cram things in. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I heard as well that um, I don't remember the exact details, but I think it wasn't going to come back for the last few episodes until 
there was some sort of letter writing campaign or something. Yeah, I'm that's true. Sure that's true. That's true. The, uh, the, 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 effectively, their order was slashed, and the idea was that the remaining ones were going to be produced but not screened. But the letter writing campaign convinced the network that well, you know, we've got to pay for them. Um, we might as well might as well screen them to these obsessives. Um, and, and that wasn't the first letter writing campaign, but it was the first one in my life that I knew about. Um, and it was sort of exciting to think of fans rising up to defend defend something like this. And now, of course, it happens. Well, it happens certainly for virtually every kind of um, Joss Whedon project that that, that gets cancelled. There's you know so much around it, and um, I, I had to say that I, I I would happily suggest Twin Peaks to anybody, but I don't know what the what the sort of you know public pop culture consciousness is of it now. Um, I'm. I'm just convinced that if anyone who has any interest in in good TV, if they picked up the first DVD, they would not stop until they'd gone through the whole thing. So um, it has such magnificence. When, as I said, you know, or, or Brendan, as you said, when it when it does it really well, it does it it does it fantastically. But when it does it badly in the, in the middle of the second season, there are a couple of really really bum episodes. But you've got to stick with it because it will all, always surprise you, and it will genuinely. Uh, make you laugh it will genuinely terrify you and all of this within the sort of confines of this uh, this American soap I mean it's it's just fantastic so if you have um, anything you want to say on Twin Peaks let us know do check out the retrospective um, on uh, on the site guys anything else you want to say about Twin Peaks before we wrap it up there's a film as well let's not forget that yeah um, Far Walk With Me Twin Peaks The Last Seven Days in the Life of Laura Palmer it's a sort of um, it's a sort of prequel, but the start of it is a is a prequel to that prequel, and we have a a different town and a whole different bunch of characters. And it is probably one of Lynch's most punishing and cruel films. And um, it, it pretty much is bereft of any of these appealing elements of the TV show. Although there was there are supposed to be deleted scenes which fans are cramming for, aren't they, to try and see if they're going to get released? Um, well, yeah, Lynch is currently involved in negotiations, but the sticking point is, as it always is, money. Of course, yeah. So, um, Firewalk with me, I, I I saw straight after because at the end of the second series, when I found out that that was it, I immediately tried to you know tried to find any more Twin Peaks because it kind of gets you like that, um, where you really really have to find some more. Uh, it's, different i think uh it's much darker i think than than the series clearly because i think that's of, of the subject matter of, of what lynch is trying to talk about because he can, doesn't have to worry about too much else the the world is built and he can just sort of show the journey that happened before this uh before the series began um it is a really really interesting film craig you've obviously seen it what do you think of firewalk with me um i i really love firewalk with me but it is a totally different beast and i think it it would put a lot of people off uh, if they went to that first. And I think um, when I first watched with me, I, I watched it after seeing the series and I was a little disappointed because it didn't give me all the things that the series gave me. But after watching it a few more times later on, I realized kind of what it was and it was really, really good and it's a great film, but I, I don't think it offers as much as the series does. Um, I just love I can't it's hard it's been very hard talking without gushing too much I absolutely love this series it's so good <laughs> I think you've done pretty well and I think we I think we all have basically you know we this could be the Twin Peaks podcast but um uh, go out and buy it don't watch Firewalk with me until you finish the um 
until he finished the series. But uh, then do absolutely watch it. Don't be put off by absolutely. the fact that, that what Craig just said. Do do watch it. Oh no, yeah. no, def- definitely do watch it. Yeah. Oh no, hundred percent. No, it, it is a great film. It's just uh, yeah, it's a different sort of thing. But I'd I'd also like to say as well that you know Lost is finishing very soon. If you're a big Lost fan. What, don't watch Flash Forward straight afterwards. Watch L- Twin Peaks. Absolutely. I hardly but you won't really have the option to watch Flash Forward afterwards. That's going in the dumpster. It probably is, yeah. <laughs> but actually, you look, at the, you look at what TV shows have been popular, especially in this decade, and, and I think of the X-Files that came you know, sort of pretty soon after Twin Peaks, and I wonder how much of, of, of the TV shows that we love and that we talk about and that the internet is, you know, is, is, is constantly talking about. I wonder how much of that is, is owed to Twin Peaks. And it seems to be that it is uh, almost forgotten and relegated sort of, you know, fans of David Lynch and only for fans of David Lynch. It's, um, do you think that if Twin Peaks hadn't existed, that we would have had the same sort of, te- you know, last two decades of TV? Of course not. No, not at all. I think it owes a huge debt, modern television. I think things like Twin Peaks, uh, uh, the X-Files, sorry, is a perfect example. And I, David Coffney was in Twin Peaks. Uh, As an right. FBI agent. In a very memorable role. Uh, I, I won't give away his character, but he's very memorable. And I think that kind of, like you say, the Boy Scout um, investigating this horrible mystery, that, that's almost the model for X-Files. Uh, and I think it's, yeah, I think it owes a huge debt. I think a series like Lost it would have been a much harder pitch to the studios as well if if you hadn't had this legacy of things gradually... They wouldn't moving. even have thought to pitch it. I mean, the fact that, that, that television... Television changed overnight with Twin Peaks. Changes since then have been slow. It's uh, it's good that, that we're remembering it in terms of the 20th anniversary, and I do hope that people, if you haven't seen it, you must go and watch it because you will be rewarded again and again with it. Um... Okay. We, we should remember that Lynch did try to do it again and he failed the second time. Um, his second time attempt to do a drama for television was uh, indeed Mulholland Drive. Yeah. And the film, when you watch it, is 90% of the footage of a TV pilot and then materially filmed afterwards to resolve it. Um, what's both kind of brilliant and disappointing about Mulholland Drive is that this was not the way it was intended to be resolved. That's quite brilliant that he managed to resolve it in such a a clear and sensible way. What's disappointing is actually the story shape in Mulholland Drive and the way it's told is just a simplification of Lost Highway, really. Mm. So Lost, Lost Highway's you know, just it just feels so much stronger and more more elaborate than, than Mulholland Drive. Yeah, I mean, we are obviously all big Lynch fans, so you know, if if you've got any interest in in you know decent and challenging film films, do do go and, and check out pretty much everything he's done because I don't think he's made a bad film. Um, all right, guys, we're going to move on uh, from our our celebration of Twin Peaks. We're going to um, move directly into our regular feature, um, which is where we recommend a movie. Uh, that maybe you haven't seen or maybe the others haven't seen. Um, one of our favourites, um, and uh, we hope that you will, you know, um, take up our recommendation and go and see it. Um, right, I think I'm going to go first this week because it kind of links in very nicely with what we've talked about. Um, this is something that I was made aware of um, about 10 years ago, and it was, I believe it was part of a David Lynch interview that he did where it was actually screened. Um, in 1995, there, were, there was an idea to get 40 of the, of, of the world's sort of most acclaimed directors to reuse uh, 
um, a Lumiere camera which had been restored and to give them different uh, restrictions uh, basically to film as if they were filming at the time of the Lumiere brothers and it was 40 different short films um, that were um, about 50 seconds to a minute I think is is, is the runtime for them and uh, the film collected all of these films together and interviewed the directors and talked a little bit about um, the process and the stories that they were trying to tell uh, David Lynch actually obviously had one of these and um, his 50, minute, uh, 50 second short is suitably bizarre and you can tell which one it is out of the 40 if you didn't know um, it's a really really delightful little, little piece of it and the way that the rest of these um, directors, you got Michael Haneke, you got Lassie Halstrom, you had Spike, um, Spike Lee, uh, the way that they used the camera, the way that they told their stories in this obviously very uh, restricted time, and um, they also weren't allowed to use um, any synchronized sound. There was um, uh, a lot of different variations on, on this same theme. Um, the film was called Lumiere and Company. It's 1995. It's available on DVD, and it's really worth seeing. It's a kind of an experiment to see what these directors would do with it if if they were obviously you know using using this camera and at that time. Guys, have any of you seen this? Yeah, I've seen it. Uh, I think uh, I think Lynch's is actually the standout one. The way that he, not to give too much away, he sort of gets a cut into it without actually cutting, doesn't he? Using um, one of nature's elements, if you know what I mean. I do. Um, so uh, he's pretty clever, clever little trick there. I think it's really good. I very much like Peter Greenaway's one as well. Um, um, you know, it's nice to see some of my favourites like Vin Vendors and um, uh, Arthur Penn did one, you know, w- w- working away there. Uh, it's a it's a good film to see see all of these in context. It's it's a fun sort of film sociology experiment in a sense to see how they all handle it differently and how they all talk about the films that they've made and whether you can actually connect their supposed intent to the the minute reel you see and and of, of course you mean that I, I'd kill to make one really myself I've got an idea for about 5,000 films uh, of this ilk but it would seem unfair to not actually uh, do it I mean it, it seems to be you're not playing by the rules if you don't do it with a rule in your camera what's the point do you know what I mean exactly. but um, I, 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 I do I do love it a great deal even though I'd say at least half of them are just rubbish that's true. You do have to sort of, you know, find, um, you know, find, find, find the good stuff. But Lynch, for me, I think actually the way that I discovered it is I saw this this interview or whatever, and I, and they played this, and instantly I was kind of hooked. Not only by the fact that David Lynch is one, and it is a standout of the uh, of the um, of the film, but uh, I was just captivated by the notion of how he then used the restrictions and he made such a wonderful little um, you know atmosphere it was created a story there was so much to it and um, it, and then to see the rest of the directors uh, use, um, use use these same restrictions and to sort of see what their take on the world is so in the same way that you've got the parallel lines where they took dialogue and used it differently um, it is an experiment oh, it's all are, coming together isn't it John um, it was actually—I I, I didn't plan it because we—I didn't know we were going to talk about Twin Peaks tonight, so it did work out really well for me. <laughs> um, I'll edit that bit out, so it looks like I know exactly what I'm doing. Um, but uh, but seriously, do check it out, Craig. Have you? Uh, I think you've seen this as well. Yeah, I um I, I got the DVD when it came out, um, mostly because I wanted to see the Lynch one, if I'm honest. Um, and I wasn't disappointed. I absolutely love the Lynch one. I, I haven't watched it in a long time, so I don't remember them that well, but. I remember intensely disliking the Spike Lee one, um, but yeah, 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> I remember finding them as little fun experiments. They were absolutely great, and it, yeah, it's a pleasure to watch them. And uh, it's really, it's really nice, kind of seeing big directors going back to this kind of this older medium. It's really interesting. Yeah, really, really, really great choice, John. Yeah, no, really. thank you. I mean, it's it's something that, that I remembered, and I was just thinking, um, uh, people who who read this, you know, who listen to this, and they, they like David Lynch. It's something that maybe I think it's on a DVD of his, but just to try and see, you know, in context and see what other people do, it's it's definitely definitely worth a watch. So it is available on DVD, and I will be putting a trailer uh, or a clip up on the post of this podcast when it goes on the site. Brendan, what's your one for this week? Mine is Jellyfish. It's um, uh, a film from Israel from 2007, 2006, I believe. Um, and it won the Camera Door at Cannes in 2007. Um, and it's a film directed by Edgar Caret and Shira Geffen, who are a husband and wife team. And Caret is a short story author, and he's the guy who wrote the story and indeed later the screenplay that uh, gave us Wrist Cutters. Um, which is an altogether better-known film. But Jellyfish is a kind of um, magic realist story set in modern-day 21st century Tel Aviv, and it tells the story of three different women who only tangentially sort of touch upon each other's lives and about how their lives are prone to outside forces, um, and it's got a sort of a light, dreamy, come surrealist sort of edge to it. At the same time, it's feeling very freshly neo-realist, and you'll really kind of have to watch it to to know what I mean by that. But if you if you've seen maybe some of uh, De Sica's fantasy stuff, you'll 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 probably have completely the wrong idea in your head. It's not that blend of neorealism and, uh, and fantasy. But uh, Jellyfish is probably got one of the lightest touches I, I've seen any, any film have. It's it's very, very subtle. And the first hour can seem to be moving a little slower pace than we're typically used to. But if you stay with it, then all of these things you've seen that didn't seem to mean much start to take on more weight. And it moves to, to, to quite a, a, a touching last half, actually. It sounds great. I've, I've, I've not heard of it. Um, and I'll Probably like Blood Car. We're checking out all of your all of your suggestions. Craig, have you heard of this one? No, I haven't at all. No, I'll definitely be checking it out. Brendan, is it available on DVD? Can the general public purchase it? If the general public can play DVDs from other regions, they're fine because Zeitgeist released this in the US. And if the general public can't play DVDs from other regions, can the general public please hold out their hands for a slap on the wrist? Okay, excellent. That's great. Um, Brendan, thanks very much for your suggestion. We'll, of course, have some sort of trailer on the site. Okay, Craig, uh, what's your pick of this week? Uh, My pick is a film that I have no idea why it's not absolutely loved by everyone. Um, My only guess is the terrible distribution that it got. And that's a film by Roman Coppola from 2001 called CQ. Um, Have you seen it, John? Do you know what? I haven't. Why it's, do I, uh, and, and not for the obvious one, Roman Coppola, I know obviously he's going to be related, but has he done anything else that I may have heard uh, of? He's made, he's done quite a lot of music videos, um, but he, yeah, he's uh, Sophia Coppola's brother. Sure. Um, and it's baffling. Uh, he made this film in 2001 and it stars Jeremy Davies, who is in Lost now. Uh, Jeremy Davies is absolutely brilliant in it. Um, and it's 
such a fun film. So um, what, what, it's, it's called CQ. What, what's the basic story of it all? Um, it's basically a film about filmmaking. Um, it, Jeremy Davis is a director, or he's an aspiring director, living in 60s Paris, just around the time of the kind of uh, 69 revolution. And he's desperate to get into filmmaking. Uh, he makes his own little black and white film, which is loosely based on a film called David Holtzman's Diary. Um, that was an actual film that came out in the 60s. Uh, which is kind of really over-the-top documentation of his life. Uh, he films himself talking in the toilet. He uh, films his girlfriend incessantly to the point where it annoys her. Um, and then he's also, at the same time, making a really fun 60s action spy movie, um, which stars <laughs> a character, which is a character called Dragonfly. Uh, and this film's kind of in the vein of Barbarella or Danger Diabolique, um, Kind of really fun 60s over the top sort of uh, action spy flick and uh, those two films within the film make up two thirds of the film and then the other third is Jeremy Davis kind of wandering around Paris and living this life as a kind of a, an aspiring director and it's just such an enjoyable film, it's such a fun film, it's such a touching film, um, it really draws me in every time, I can watch it over and over again. Um, and yeah, it's just wonderful. And I think that if you're a big fan of films like Barbarella or Danger Diabolique, anything like that, um, you're going to absolutely love it because it's it has constant callbacks to those sort of films. Uh, it has that kind of retro feeling, but it does it in a really nice and genuine way. Uh, Roman Coppola is obviously a massive fan of those films, uh, but doesn't just sample them uh, endlessly. He He really uses what those films were and he clearly understood them. And uh, yeah, it makes a, a lovely film because of it. That's a great recommendation, and, and this is what I love about doing this section every week: is that instantly it's finished. I'm onto you know my love film queue, and I'm, I'm you know adding these things because um, I, I'd not heard of it, even though it does sound kind of familiar. So it could be that somebody else has, has recommended it to me, but um, I'll definitely definitely be checking it out. I love when um, filmmakers play with. Uh, with filmmaking and movie making, you know, within their films, I think that's that's a really interesting mirror to kind of hold up and, uh, you know, hold up against themselves. And uh, you know, some of the best stories can can come out of that. So, um, in terms of uh, what Roman Coppola does, is it uh, is it like an affectionate thing, or is it more of a parody, or is it just about you know trying to make some sense of of, of his love for these films? No, it's it's in no way a parody. It's um, I mean, there's obviously funny moments. Uh, the film within the film, Dragonfly, is is funny. You know, uh, in the same way that Barbarella is kind of funny, but it's also entirely a love letter to this kind of cinema. Um, he's obviously in love with it, and it just totally comes through. Um, I think um, it's it's a shame actually. If you go on your love film list, you won't be able to find it. Uh, it Seriously, um, that's no good. It, okay. Um, which is the crazy thing and why I wanted to recommend it, that it, you can't buy it on DVD in the UK. It's only available in America. But the American DVD is amazing. Uh, it's up there with the Criterion disc. It's got commentaries, featurettes. It's got fake trailers for the films that are in the film. Uh, it's got two versions of the film within the film that you can actually watch. Um, it's an absolutely fantastic DVD. Uh, so if you've got a region-free player, you have to buy it because it's so good. And uh, the commentary is really fascinating. Roman Coppola talking about kind of almost Easter eggs within the film. Parts of There's one moment, I think, where someone punches out a wall and he says that that's something his dad actually did. 
and <laughs> there's moments where he has like bits of the set off from his dad's films and things like that it's uh yeah really rich film with lots of details that the extras on the dvd really bring out okay well i'm i'm now totally sold on it so that's that's perfect so maybe not a love film but you know um hopefully maybe it'll get it'll get a uk release um but i'm definitely going to check that out that's fantastic great good one really really loved it um okay that's going to bring us to the end of our to the end of our show for this week um, hope you enjoy Twin Peaks if you do see it uh, Craig, Brendan thank you so much for your time um, Craig you can find writing on, on Hey You Guys um, Brendan Connolly you can find on SlashFilm.com um, you can follow us on Twitter at Hey You Guys blog uh, and um, we've got Facebook pages and all the rest of it so it's been it's been a lot of fun tonight uh, hope you enjoyed it too see you next week bye